Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be looking at the new Richard Linklater film, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? We're also going to take a look at a uh, not as well-known film, but something we're both excited to see, Blinded by the Light, directed by Gurinder Chadha, the director of Bend It Like Beckham. Uh, we're going to t- talk about The Matrix, because that came up this week in news, and we're going to talk about that in between our films, our Death of Cinema segment, because for all intents and purposes, we kind of thought The Matrix was done, so it's worth talking about this interesting uh, article but before we get to all of that we need to talk about the news and the first big story this week of two uh, sony kills their spider-man partnership deal with marvel studios now this is a very new story this came out like a half hour ago uh, <laughs> yeah. so this is subject to change and there are updates as follows but for what it's worth we're going to talk about it as we have it andy you probably know this a little better but better than i do uh what's going on here uh so, like the headline says, uh, Marvel and, and Sony are in some sort of dispute over, you know, the deal that they have. Uh, Disney wants to continue the deal they have or alter alter the deal. Something like that. They're not happy with the, the terms, and so it looks like they're going to actually kill the partnership, which means that Spider-Man will no longer will revert back to Sony and not be in the MCU and vice versa. They can't use each other's characters now. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at. It looks like the reason this happened is because Disney revisited the deal and said that they think they deserve to get a 50-50 financial split on all of the money that comes from Spider-Man films going forward, which to me seems to make sense, but Sony doesn't think so. Apparently what the current deal is, Disney gets what's called 5% of first dollar gross and maintains merchandising rights. I don't know what first dollar gross means. Uh, The article we're looking at doesn't tell us, but merchandising rights are a big deal. All right. That's t-shirts and selling things. I mean, that's what made Star Wars so big, right? Mm -hmm. And for Disney, that's huge, but that may not be enough. So why is Sony not going for this? What, what makes you think they're, they're, they're thinking sacrificing the Marvel universe is worth it. Well, uh, I think they're a little bit full of themselves at the moment. Um, Spider-Man Far From Home was recently, uh, it was reported earlier this week that it's the biggest and most profitable Sony film to date, or of like all time. Um, And so I think that they think that they're, well, we got this super hot property, we're going to hang on to it. But I mean, Spider-Man has had such a troubled uh, history and it's, I mean, it's equally as big, could be as big as like Batman or Superman. It's that well-known it, but it's been started several times um, in various forms. Various. It was, you know, done three, rebooted three times in a decade. So it's just, it's had a lot of trouble. And Sony has not done a good job with this property or with any of their comic book properties, frankly. Which also includes Fantastic Four, which has been rebooted twice and is terrible. So I, I think that, <laughs> that they, they know that they have this incredibly profitable um, property, and so I think they just want to you know, make sure they're still making the, the lion's share of the money. But uh, they have had a lot of trouble capitalizing, and, and it was only in the inclusion in the MCU, I think, that has made this movie as good as it is. Now, it's worth talking about uh, why in the storyline of Spider-Man this might seem possible, because you might think to yourself, wait, 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 Spider-Man's so baked into the Marvel Universe, how, how could you not have him in there now? Um, not necessarily. Like, Spider-Man Homecoming definitely made some departures from the Marvel Universe, and acting as an epilogue for Avengers Endgame definitely kind of capped it in a weird way, and there's certainly potential to just kind of ignore Marvel stuff from now on, which seems wild to me, 
But why couldn't you do it, right? You could avoid talking about the Avengers for two more Spider-Man movies. You could avoid talking about Nick Fury or S.H.I.E.L.D. You could just have Spider-Man working on his own little Spider-Man problems and not worry about it. But if there's anybody that I would bet is upset about this, it's got to be the cast. Because decisions like this aren't made by consulting Tom Holland to see what he thinks about his Spider-Man character. So to me, he's got to be concerned because he stands to lose on some big Disney money, right? And big Disney opportunity uh, by splitting from the Marvel Universe. Am I, am I crazy thinking that? No, absolutely. He was, uh, I mean, you look at an actor like Chris Evans who started as Captain America. I mean, he was fairly well known, but he wasn't a huge deal, wasn't an essential part of it. And then over the 10 years, his career has really blossomed and he's become a household name. And, Tom Holland has the opportunity to do the same thing and be as big and well-known, and he's starting to do some other films, which look really good. Uh, but <laughs> this is definitely a safe bet that is on shaky ground now. I'm curious. Going up against the House of Mouse, right, typically does not work well for film companies, but they have made some great strides with Spider-Man and the Marvel properties, Sony and Disney working together. I mean, Andy, we're not a speculative show, but what do you think? All right. Just curious. Do you think they're going to work this out? Or do you think it's just going to stick? I mean, uh, you never know. I think they should work this out. Uh, Disney clearly has the better storytelling talent uh, with uh, Kevin Feige, uh, who oversees all the Marvel development and will soon oversee new Star Wars development as well. So that's that's what makes these movies work is great storytelling, and that's what they brought to Marvel, and they brought it to Spider-Man. And if they don't, I don't have confidence that they're going to be able to do it on their own. I'm in the same boat. I think they should totally figure it out and get back together for the good of the character, for the good of the story, for the good of the audience. Like, we've done three Spider-Man reboots. If this one doesn't work out, if this one fizzles, like, I don't know how how much more you can keep going back to it. You know what I mean? Like, they put a lot of effort and money and time and work into making Tom Holland's Spider-Man a really good Spider-Man, and he's a tremendously good Spider-Man. Um, don't don't ruin a good thing, you know, yeah. over, over money. Um <laughs> Yeah, but, and I, th- I think he could know. technically still stay being Spider-Man, but it just, like, then he's got to worry about the quality of these films. Right. Um, and who knows where that's going to go. And speaking of Disney, our next story, uh, before we get to Where'd You Go, Bernadette, Toy Story 4 crosses the $1 billion threshold at the worldwide box office. Out of the six highest-grossing films this year, Disney has now produced five of them, and five of them have made over $1 billion. This is huge news. The House of Mouse can't be stopped. Andy, what do you know about this? Um... Toy Story 4 is making a ton of money. And like I said, Disney is continuing to dominate the the box office uh, this year. And we said this earlier that they have already earned more this year than they have, than their kind of best year. Like they've already beat their own record and we still have five months, four months to go uh, in the year. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see what this means. It means, I wonder what it's going to mean for the future of Toy Story because, you know, they said that this was going to be the last one, but of course they said that about the third one. So will they make more movies or will they pivot to their shows with Disney, Disney Plus? Who knows? It's worth mentioning uh, Toy Story 4 has not yet beat out Toy Story 3. As far as money goes, Toy Story 3 made $1.606 billion or something like that when it came out in 2010. But Toy Story 4 also hasn't come out in Germany or across Scandinavia yet. Now, there's definitely some pirates out there that have seen it. But, like, kids and families still haven't, which means there's definitely some potential for this to keep rolling. It is stunning how much money this movie's made. I'm glad Pixar needs a win every once in a while. Um, But, yeah, I I don't know what this means for Toy Story 5, if there's going to be one. 
Um, probably at the rate they're going. Why, I mean, why would you stop making a film that makes a billion dollars, right? Like, why wouldn't you just make another one? They made like six Jaws films, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> uh, so who knows? Um, but one thing's for sure, man, Disney... Can they be stopped at this point? Are they are they too big to fail? Um, I think they might be. I think Disney might be just you know i mean at this point you're gonna need like government and intervention like right. do, do some trust busting kind of yeah you're gonna that, need some you know, writers strike or something like to slow them down at this point like it's mm-hmm. it's huge well and like i said a lot of it is they're gearing up towards to put all their eggs i think in the streaming basket because of how huge streaming is and they know they have a good library but they also are going to need a more original content. And so I think they're, they're going to flex out these properties. Like um, it was announced earlier this week that there's going to be an Obi-Wan Kenobi series with Ewan McGregor. Uh, and that's, pro- and that's going straight to Disney plus. And you know, that's probably a better place for star Wars and a lot of their other properties. You can tell long form stories and that's where that's going to keep viewers. It's going to keep people interested. Yeah. Uh, for Toy Story 4, there's going to be some kind of forky TV series on Disney+, Plus, so they're going to keep it going over there in some capacity. Um, so that's the development there. This still hasn't beat out Incredibles 2 or Finding Dory, two other Pixar sequels for money. But the thing that's most notable, I think, before we wrap up this story is... Uh, Disney has not done making money in 2019 because they still have to come out with Frozen 2 and Star Wars 9, and both of those are going to be huge. It is a huge year at the movie for Disney. Arguably the biggest year ever. Um, which, I mean, I don't know. We've talked about it all year, right? Like how big this company's getting. And I'm not sure what that means for the future of movies. But it's something <laughs> worth noting. Um, so yeah, there's your Disney update, I guess. Mm-hmm. And with that, we should move on to our first film of the episode. Andy has graciously agreed to take the summary on this while he's doing that. I'm going to be looking up the summary for the next one because that one's a whole... <laughs> ball of wax but this one's nothing uh to, to 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 turn your i don't know what i'm trying to say andy do you want to please do the honors where'd you go bernadette sounds like i've been in training for this for the last 20 years so this is the latest film by richard linklater who's done some classic films such as uh Days and confused and boyhood and the uh before the before trilogy as well uh as an auteur filmmaker makes some really interesting things uh, this film has had a little bit of a troubled history. It was pushed back multiple times. I think it was supposed to come out in the spring and it got pushed and then it kept getting pushed. Um, anyways, the story is we have Kate Blanchett who plays Bernadette Fox. She is a, a retired architect. She lives in Seattle or Portland or somewhere in the, the Northwest Seattle. Yeah. Um, with her husband played by Billy Crudup and their daughter by newcomer Emma Nelson. Um, she's very kind of, uh, erratic and egocentric and she's a little crazy and they live in this old house that it's a fixer upper that hasn't quite been fixed up, but it's got some really amazing things that she's done because she is like this incredible architect. Um, but she's not a people person. She doesn't get along with anyone. She hates everyone. She wears black all the time. She has a very catty relationship with her neighbor, uh, played by Kristen Wiig. Um, and she seems to kind of slowly be losing her grip on reality. And uh, she's doing things like hoarding uh, 
medicine, prescription drugs. She's also um, dis- becoming more and more aggressive towards her neighbors. And uh, this becomes a, a problem uh, for the family and for the community. And uh, eventually an intervention uh, is kind of staged to address these issues and Bernadette disappears essentially. And that's the, the setup of our story. And there's um, it's an interesting film. There's some things that work. I think there's a lot that doesn't, um, but what we're going to be getting into that. Zach, what did you think? You know, there's a lot about this movie that I liked. It really is. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed some things like the performances, the cinematography. Uh, I liked a lot about the directing. The writing was charming, and I really enjoyed Kate Blanchett's portrayal of this like really flawed uh, woman who struggles to connect with the world as a creative. Like I thought that was really neat. Um, but I struggled to connect with the character and that really hurt I think the whole film and it's probably worth a rewatch for me because I felt like I just missed something and I don't know if you felt the same way but I want to get into it uh Andy what'd you think of where'd you go Bernadette uh so I was kind of all over the place I hated the first act I thought it (laughs) I thought it started but then I thought it picked up I thought it started going somewhere during the second act and then the third act just kind of went off the rails for me um I think this movie actually has a lot of real problems. It does have some some good things. The performances I thought were were very good, but it's uh, I think this is a bad movie with a lot of really uh, tone deaf issues uh, that we can get into. Perfect. <laughs> so let's start with the performances. This is a Linklater film, of course. Richard Linklater, who's popular for films like Boyhood, Dazed and Confused, uh, the Before trilogy, uh, School of Rock. Um, but I, I want to talk, he did do Days and Confused, right? I'm not crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did do Days and Confused. Uh, but let's talk about the performances. Kate Blanchett plays this character, uh, uh, Bernadette, who is like essentially seen as nuts. Uh, Billy Crudup plays her husband who is very grounded and a very sharp guy. And they have a daughter who's uh, a breakout performance by, I forget her name. Emma Nelson. Emma Nelson uh, and a host of other uh, characters. They kind of swim in and out of this movie. Judy Greer, Kristen Wiig, Lawrence Fishburne's in this movie. Um, ultimately, I, I thought everybody was pretty okay, but man, I really thought Kate Blanchett was outstanding. Yeah, she she's awesome. I mean, we, like she's not phoning it in at all. You know, she she does a good job playing this real eccentric, antisocial, creative person that's like both genius, but also awkward, which is, you know, that's not uncommon. Yeah. And, and she plays this architect who hasn't kind of created anything in a long time and nobody really knows why. Um, and, and as you kind of find out more about her through the movie and the way she kind of interacts with the world, like you totally get why people think she's certifiable. Like, cause she shows all the signs of being nuts. And what's, what was tough for me is like the movie doesn't do a great job of putting you on her side. Um, it really just makes you think she's crazy too. So at some point, like I'm not, I, I wasn't really rooting for her. I was thinking, okay, no, her husband's right. She does need help. Like clearly she needs help. Uh, clearly she has problems. Um, but the movie doesn't really like ever say, Hey, uh, people like this need help. It's kind of the opposite. Let, let crazy people, run with their crazy ideas. <laughs> yeah. Like, Let them do their thing. Like, I, I'm not sure that's a great message. And I just kept felt kind of conflicted about that as I watched it. No, that's, that's exactly what I was going to get at. So first of all, the setup of this, this film, I could not relate to. It reminded me when we watched beautiful boy, it's like, Oh no, wealthy p- people with some problems, you know? Mm. Cause like, you know, she's this 
a genius architect who you know built structures in LA. Now they live in Portland. Her uh, husband, you know, sold a company to Microsoft. So it's like they're they're incredibly wealthy. And well, oh, but woe is me. It's so hard when you're a genius. And I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's like this is really unrelatable to the average person. Um, and then again, the, she is showing some signs of some real uh, mental health issues, and the movie plays this as a joke, like, "Oh, I don't need it," like because they talk about you know something as severe as institutionalization, and you know she's shocked, and no, oh, this is not. You think I'm crazy? You want to throw me in the loony bin? And it's all these kind of derogatory terms about mental health, and it's like it, it, the whole kind of message of the movie is the importance of if you're creative, you need to create and that's fine, but it throws all these mental health things out the window, which I think are very important and need to be addressed. The trailer of this is weird because it, the the first trailer didn't show much. The second one shows all these things in Antarctica, which is a big uh, plot point. And I, th- at first I was like, Oh, is that going to take place in her mind or something? But really when confronted with her issues and, uh, kind of, and they may, it may not be mental health. It may be more of just like, you don't know how to deal with people. You need to learn how to, uh, but her solution is to run away from all these problems and to not seek help. And, and seeking help is seemed is portrayed as a very negative thing. Right. Her, her husband does a great job. Billy Crudup, who actually really enjoyed that guy needs more work. Um, he does a great job of kind of seeing it from the other side of the fence, right? Where the audience kind of is. And, saying, you know, this woman, like, has a history of running from her problems. That's her whole thing. Like, she can never stand her ground and do anything. She runs away from everything. And his daughter is like, you just don't get it. Ma's my best friend. And I was just like, nobody gets it. Like, me and everybody else in the theater, there were two other people in there, but, like, everybody else, like, none of us understand. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it's not clear. And and that makes it a frustrating watch. Um we should talk about the set design and the cinematography because whoever did production design in this movie did some great work. Um, right, right. Do you, do you want to kind of get into that a little bit? So, I mean, there's some of this that looks great. Like, they live in this really, like I said, this fixer-upper house that has some really amazing design, but at the same time, it has, like, leaking roofs. Uh, and then, But then there's all these shots. Like, the last third of the film is in Antarctica, um, and they looks like and it looks like they were actually there and actually shooting on location, which is also really impressive production wise. Um, that, but that's really what stood out to me. What what kind of did you notice? Well, she plays this kind of hero architect type, right? Like she's done all these incredible things, and she's drawn in a in a montage of like a video essay you kind of see in the film as like this Wonder Woman kind of uh, one of a kind uh, once in a lifetime kind of creative architect. And she, she creates all these incredible designs of, of, of things out of like bifocals and this house that she makes and design and like all of that stuff is put together incredibly like whoever, whoever went to the trouble to make all of that stuff to be on film, like genuinely did an incredible job with some creative work and like these really intriguing, like kind of things fixtures, uh, in, in the house and just kind of the design of the house in general is fascinating. And, and like, this this past of things she's made and built is, is really incredible. There's there's one scene in particular where she's sitting on this rickety old set of stairs in this house, and on the wall are books that are, like, pasted to the wall open, and all the pages are formed to make a shape, and they go up the wall like wallpaper, but it pops... It's like this really... 
I don't know. I, I kept looking at it. I was like, who put this together? Like, somebody yeah, really I, exactly. took this and ran with it. Yeah. Uh, the costume design is mediocre, and I didn't really, the music didn't really stand out, but, like, the look of it, the look of, hey, she's supposed to be this incredible architect. Let's make it look like that on screen. That really came out. Um, I was really, really impressed by that, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think on. one of the, the other things that's problematic for me is kind of her relationship with the other women in the film. Mm. Uh, she, you know, Kristen Wiig plays her neighbor who they're very catty. And then there's all the, a couple of other moms at the school and they're all kind of hate each other and just kind of plays into this like negative female stereotype of like women like being catty and not supporting each other. And then we get a little bit of resolution, but then it just kind of drops off. And then there's also several plot points which are just left hanging by the end of the film because they go to Antarctica and that, then it's kind of the end. Yeah. Um, I, I should get into that a little bit more, but I want to talk about the relationship with the women. Kristen Wiig plays her neighbor, Audrey, uh, in in a role that, I mean, I guess works for Kristen Wiig, but like it really didn't feel like the effort was put into her character that should have been. A fine example, like all of the women in this very... Uh, affluent kind of neighborhood that take their kids to this private school like they all have very nice hair and nails and everything's very well put together and and Kristen Wiig shows all the parts of that but like <laughs> there's no effort put into this woman's hair and I know it shouldn't matter <laughs> but like real talk like it's not dyed it doesn't look like it's she's she's run conditioner through it in like three years like it looks not great. And I'm like, why? That doesn't make any sense. Why? If she's supposed to be this woman who is the leader of the PTA at a private school, has everything going for her kids, like, what the hell's going on? Why does she look like a, a, a soccer mom from a trailer park? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and this movie just kind of runs into that in a couple spots. Kind of like, like their house that they live in. It's all decrepit and run down. I'm like, why would this guy, her husband, who is a huge part of Microsoft, who clearly had some kind of sponsorship deal in this movie, why would he be living in this house? It doesn't work. Like, I don't, I don't get it. And, yeah. and the movie just really makes no effort to address these questions and, and goes forward at a pace that almost scolds you for wondering. Yeah, like, don't don't worry about that. Don't 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 look at over the cracks over here, or the problems over there. Just keep watching the movie, you know. And and that was frustrating for me. That was really problematic in the third act, um, because there's a whole lot of suspension of belief uh, for some of these coincidence things to happen. Because uh, this whole thing about going to Antarctica, because they people end up going separately and then meet up, and it would be like this logistical nightmare that probably would never happen. Uh, you know, just because it involves planes and boats and that, you know, that whole thing. It's just, it's so unrealistic. It just really took me out of it. So we should talk about kind of towards the end of the film. I, this isn't a spoiler podcast, so we won't talk about what happens. But um, Andy, were you particularly satisfied with the way this film ended? It, it kind of surprised me when it ended. Like it just like it went straight to credits and I was like, oh, I've, I felt like we're missing a scene. There's this like really abrupt end. I feel like we're missing a whole act. Like it, it ends so abruptly. Like back in the day when I worked at the movies and we used to like have to cut 35 millimeter film and put it together to run it on reels. Like if you forgot a reel of film, if somehow you were missing one, that's what it would look like. Like it looked like, <laughs> I, like I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it when directed by Richard Linklater came up on the bottom of the screen. I was like, like I checked my watch. I was like, surely Surely that can't be the end of the movie. Like, it feels like it doesn't have an ending. Yeah. It's missing an ending or something. Um, and I don't know how to feel about that. 
Like, like I, I said, the, the, this film has been really troubled. It's been pushed back. It's probably been recut a lot. Um, like I said, several plot points are just left hanging because there's all these th- things with these, like the catty women and then like uh, Billy Crudup's uh, new secretary clearly kind of has the hots for him. And there's yeah. what, what it's implied that some affair may or may not happen. And that's just like left. That's never addressed again. Like we, we once we go to Antarctica, we don't come back. And there's these plot points that are left hanging. And it was just like, what is, yeah, what is going on? Right. Uh, the daughter uh, early in the film says that she wants to go to prep school and then suddenly in the middle of the film feels guilty about it. And then at the end decides she's not going to go anymore. Uh, the husband ends up uh, making a really big professional decision, just seemingly out of the blue. Like it's it's I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe it's an editing problem. Maybe they just didn't know what they were working with uh, when they were putting the movie together. But like it just it's just such an oddly placed movie for a care for for a film about a character that's so creatively stifled you know Mm -hmm. so ultimately um andy uh, anything else you want to say about this before we move on to recommendations um other than you know the whole kind of message of the film is uh about getting back to your if you're creative that you need to be creating and if you stop you need to kind of Fine. It reminded me of like, you know, how Stella got her groove back, kind of. <laughs> that's, that's all I could think of. Yeah. Um, how Bernadette got her groove back. And it's like, that that's a p- good and positive message. But like the way it goes about telling this ridiculous story and the fact that it like really kind of downplays and is really derogatory towards mental health and specifically seeking help for mental health, uh, that really, really bothered me. Yeah, me too. Uh, I... I... <sighs> I guess we can't get too much too too far into it without really you know revealing the plot, but more than we have. Um, but ultimately, like I I feel so mixed about this movie, and I wish I didn't feel that way because I feel like if it was put together better, I wouldn't. So um, there's there's things in it that really worked. There's things in it that really didn't. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say hard pass on this. It is. Oh, wow. I think it is is a really bad film and, and i think it has some really negative uh message messaging it has, has some ne- negative stereotypes it's clumsily put together you have to suspend belief like crazy just to kind of get through it it does have some good performances like kate blanchett is, is really good uh billy crudup is really good U- newcomer emma nelson very good as well but it those do not save the film those are not worth seeing with i wouldn't even wait for netflix like just skip it I'd, I'd recommend it on, on a couple of conditions. One, it's on a streaming service. And two, uh, if you liked uh, a film that came out a couple of years ago by by uh, um, um, Ben Stiller called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. That's what this reminded me of. It's reminded me of this in a lot of ways. This escapism kind of, I don't know where I'm, what I'm doing or what I'm, where I'm supposed to be going, so I'm going to go to a faraway land and find myself. That's kind of what this movie gets at, but it, it falls short in every way, including actually getting there. Uh, uh, <laughs> and you'll see what we mean when you watch it. Um, the also, performances were tremendous. Like I said, Kate Blanchett was really, really good in this movie, uh, despite it being really bad. The set design was gorgeous, but the crud-ups really good. Um, but no, it, it's not salvageable. I, I'd say if you if you were a real big Walter Mitty fan and you and you like that creative kind of thing, check it out when it's on streaming and even then you'll probably be disappointed otherwise skip it it's totally not worth your time <laughs> and with that we should move on to our next segment andy please you want to do the honors this is the death of cinema 
So an, some more hot news <laughs> coming out today. Yeah. This afternoon, in addition to Spider-Man, um, Matrix 4 officially a go with Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss and Lana Wachowski, but not both Wachowskis. The Matrix 4. Now this, so this is interesting. A friend of mine actually texted me this story and he said, hey, you may have already seen this. And I said... I didn't believe him because I was like, you know, I hear a Matrix rumor once a month and have for the last ten years, so I'm gonna need I'm gonna need some further proof. I'm gonna need receipts, and so I looked around some more, and sure enough, it is an official story. There will be a, a fourth Matrix film. Sorry, I'm laughing at. I'm gonna need receipts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're making a Matrix Four. Uh, Lana Wachowski, one of the Wachowski siblings, is set to write and direct the fourth film. Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss are both confirmed to be reprising their roles as Neo and Trinity, uh, two characters that did not have the most timely end at the end of the Matrix Three. Uh, Andy, you are a tremendous Matrix fan, probably more so than me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, I think on an old episode of Offscript, we talked about what a Matrix uh, prequel would look like. Um, right. Yes. So this is certainly a surprise. Hot takes. What, what do you think? Yeah, so I, we, we don't know anything about the story, but I feel like a fourth Matrix film is problematic. Uh, and I mean, I know I guess you got to bring back the showrunners, but I, I feel like the Matrix ends in, with the third movie. And so, and I mean, that, that movie's been out for almost 15 years. So spoiler, these people die. <laughs> like Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ad <laughs> Moss, like their characters die in the end. So it's like, yeah. okay, where, where do we go from here? So we, there's some options we could, it could be a prequel of some sort and where they are, I, you could de-age them. Uh, you know, I think uh, a Morpheus prequel would be a very good movie. It could be, it could also take time, you know, could maybe take some time between the first and second movie, something like that. Um, I don't really know. It, I'm a little wary of what they're going to do. I mean, I know you got to bring back the big names because you, you kind of have to, but it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of mental gymnastics they're going to have to do to write this form fourth film. Uh, my hot prediction, double Matrix, right? They die in the first Matrix and then they wake up in like another Matrix. It's like, <sighs> oh, that one was the Matrix the whole time. <laughs> that's what people have been that's what people have been saying for like oh for God. 20 years that it was a matrix within a matrix and we never got any c- kind of confirmation of that and there's actually a lot that's not really explained by the end of the third film um i, I, wish, all, I, I wish our listeners could see andy like his eyes rolling into the back of his head <laughs> when i said double matrix <laughs> yeah now that being said this is one of my favorite properties. I got to see this in the theater in 1999. It was it was crazy. I was, I guess, a freshman in high school. Um, everyone was seeing this movie. Everyone was talking about it. It did change cinema. Uh, the effects, it seemed to jump 10 years ahead from what... Because before this, you know, you had action movies like Judge Dredd or The Fifth Element and with that real 90s style um, kind of lots of explosions, uh, sloppy fight scenes, and then you get the Matrix, and all of a sudden you have a bunch of really great CGI. You get, um, you know, the, the introduction of bullet time and how awesome that, that looked. You had, you had instead of having stunt guys sit in for the stars, you had a, the actual movie stars learn kung fu and learn to, you know, do all these fight scenes. And, you know, the, they brought over uh, fight, court, fight choreographers from, from Asia to choreograph these fights in, in more of that style uh, of kung fu films. Um, and there's, there's a whole philosophical bit behind the first film, uh, the, a lot of, you know, questions about what is reality? What does it mean 
to accept reality or not accept reality. Like there's a whole, you know, cult thing behind this film. So it is an incredibly interesting world. It is essentially a comic book property. Uh, so you could always do really interesting things. Uh, so we'll see what it, what happens. Yeah, and we should talk about interesting things and what that might mean. And before we get into it, let's talk about the one sibling writing this. Uh, as of now, the recording of this podcast, there is no word on why Lily Wachowski is not involved in this. Um, there's no word on why, why Lawrence Fishburne is involved in this. I'm sure we'll find out in the next few days. Uh, keep it here on off script for more probably next week when I assume we'll have more details. Uh, Lana Wachowski apparently wrote a script for this. Um, that got Warner Brothers excited. And it says here they've been trying for the past couple of years to find a way to get back into the Matrix universe, but they could never really figure it out. The thing that really, I think, got them going is Keanu Reeves, right? Uh, they so just hot did John right Wick. Now. Yeah, John Wick <laughs> 3. It lists Toy Story 4. I, I mean, he didn't have a... I guess Duke Kaboom was kind of a big role in Toy Story 4, but uh, he, he's hot. Yeah, very hot. Uh, they're making Bill and Ted face the music, why not reboot The Matrix and figure out a way to do it? Carrie Ann Moss could certainly use the work. And people love The Matrix, dude. I will go see this movie. Sight unseen. You don't even have to show me yeah. a trailer. I will go see The Matrix 4 <laughs> just to see what it's about. Um, it, 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 in a lot of ways, it never felt like they really did enough with the universe and they could do more. And being that it's 20 years old now, uh, I can't wait to see what they're going to do with current tech if anything right like you don't have pay phones you can you can punch through the matrix too anymore uh you, you have to use yeah. cell phones what does that look like you know um and, and apparently lana wachowski when asked said many of the ideas that her and lily explored 20 years ago about the matrix are even more relevant now and there's a lot of Absolutely. opportunity for growth and evolution in the series uh any hot takes about that andy yeah i mean uh technology is only you know, exponentially taken off since uh, 1999. We have so many, I mean, the proliferation of uh, cell phones and social media, and we didn't even have social media when this came out. So it's uh, it's going to be a whole different world. And, and yeah, it's absolutely, you know, there's a whole, studies have been done about, you know, your online persona versus how you are in, in real life. And that's what a lot, what this movie is about. Um Oh man, I totally blanked. Oh, one of the right. things I wanted to talk about. This was also the site of my greatest hype failure of all time. Hype failure. So what happened is when the Matrix Reloaded, the second one was announced, and the trailer came out. I was hyped beyond hype, <laughs> and we have talked on this show about you know expectation managing expectations uh, when you go see a film. But this this was you know nineteen year old me. I didn't know any better, uh, and me and my friends we watched. The, the Matrix trailer, like, every day for, like, three months before it came out. We read oh every God. article. We watched it several times a day. We talked about how awesome it was going to be. And then we were really disappointed <laughs> because the second movie is okay, but it, it definitely didn't stand up. And nothing was going to stand up to our hype. Like, it just it just wasn't. Right. Being overhyped is a very real problem when it comes to movies. Uh Okay. Well, I, I was going to cite, like, another movie that I feel that way. I talked about last week. What movie... There's some movie coming up that I'm like, that's exactly where I'm at. Like, there's no way it's going to meet the expectation I have in my head. And I mean, Matrix 4, for what it's worth, man, they've got some seriously large shoes to fill. People are going to be so hypercritical about this movie. Um, But at the same time, it's been so long. I think there's a lot of potential for growth. I mean, look at what, like, Star Wars Episode 7 did, right, for the series. Like, people got so excited about it and want to see where it was going. So, who knows? Yeah, you know, and it reminds me... 
uh, you know, the, there were really cr- incredible things that they could do in the world of the Matrix because you are in a simulation in a computer, and in, they kind of amped that up in in the second and third movie. So it's going to be interesting to see where they go from here. Like what what new you know cool things can or can't you do? Because part of part of what the Matrix explained were things like you know ghosts and werewolves. They mentioned that those oh those are programs that are doing things are not supposed to be. Uh, you know, so they were explaining real world phenomenon through through the Matrix. Um, the other thing that I'm kind of excited about is this movie came out, the series came out when everything was a trilogy. You had a good movie, you're going to make a trilogy. Now everything's about share, you know, shared cinematic universe. So who's to say that this won't kick off a larger universe TV show? The Matrix kind of tried to do this uh, because they did have a video game tie-ins. They had the Animatrix. They were beginning to explore kind of different mediums. And so now I think is going to the time more than ever to expand uh, the universe past one film. Right. And so before we wrap this, I should ask, why is this our death of cinema segment? Uh, I'm going to argue. I know why, Uh, because one, it seems a little bit desperate for a reboot. And two, because Warner brothers really needs it because I know that Warner brothers put out, where'd you go? Bernadette and our next film blinded by the light, which not to talk about the quality of the film, but just to get an idea of the box office, have both done very poorly this summer. Yes. Uh, in fact, it's been a very, very rough Warner Brothers summer. Uh, I think the biggest film they put out was Godzilla, uh, which did pretty well, and that was even made in association with Legendary Pictures, so they didn't even make all the money back on that. Legendary got a big chunk of it. Annabelle 5 or whatever was the other one about the haunted doll. I think mm-hmm. that was their big movie. Otherwise, they have not done anything outstanding. So they need this. They need that. They need that Matrix money. They need it bad. So you know, I don't know. Yeah, I'm and uh, you know the other thing that Disney has, and I know this isn't a Disney property, but they have demonstrated that you know you tapping into those old favorites is a really good way to make a lot of money. Yep, I think that's very true. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm almost surprised with this announcement to see Keanu Reeves is on board. I would have figured for sure they'd just quietly start up a new matrix and then at the end have Keanu Reeves show up like uh, Luke Skywalker at the end of episode seven. Right. Yeah. Like, Oh my God. Um, that would have been a huge reveal and get people all stoked for the next one. But nope, not this time. They're going straight for the throat. He's going to be in it. It's going to be great. Uh, here's hoping they can get something together by the time it enters production in 2020 and the two stars stay attached and everything will work out because I want to see the matrix four, mm-hmm. whatever it is. We should talk about our final film of the episode. The movie is Blinded by the Light. I can't think of a better reason to visit the United States than to see the home of the boss. Blinded by the Light is the story of Javed, a young uh, British boy who is originally from Pakistan. He's born in Britain, but his family is very much Pakistani. Uh, he's, that's the correct term. Yes. Uh, he is oppressed by his dad and, and, and their ridiculous traditions, and he can't get a girlfriend, he can't go to parties, and this family struggles to get by in a very white Britain in 1987, and it's right in the middle of him being 16 and trying to discover himself as a writer and really figure out who he's going to be in his life that he stumbles onto the music of the boss Bruce Springsteen and he becomes obsessed with them and ultimately has to discover how to live life and understand his family and find his own voice through the music of 
Bruce Springsteen. Uh, it is <laughs> featuring a lot of <laughs> music by Bruce Springsteen in the film. The movie is Blinded by the Light. Andy, what did you think of Blinded by the Light? Yeah, I mostly liked it. It it had a lot of it has a lot of good things, a lot going for it. It does have a few issues, but overall, I thought it worked. You know, it is mostly this family drama of you know of generations of first. Uh, you know, first generation versus second generation immigrants of wanting to kind of break tradition, tradition, and also, uh, you know, be be artistic. Um, there's a lot of good good things going on. There's some things that don't work, but overall, I enjoyed it. I'm in the same boat. Uh, I think there's actually I was probably more critical of it than you were. I think there's a lot of things in this movie that don't work. Uh, similar to Where'd You Go, Bernadette, there are plot points that are picked up and then never really addressed. It takes some tremendous leaps through time uh, to tell the story that aren't really that they kind of lose the audience, and it's definitely got some problems with tone. Um, but it's got heart; it really does. This movie's it's got a little bit of soul to it, and 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 ultimately, the story of a boy uh, in high school who finds this one artist or one band that that he just feels like speaks directly to him uh, from so far away. Like that really spoke to me. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It's got some tremendous performances. Let's talk about it. What is the best place to start talking about Blinded by the Light? Because if I had to say anything, it's in its setting. A Pakistan, Pakistani yeah. family in 1987 Britain in the middle of the Cold War. Yeah, so so we're that's where we're at. We're also in a place where uh, you know Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan are are in power. Jobs are being cut back. And uh, you know this kind of recession is on the horizon. And it's starting to feel the squeeze and it seems like it's starting from the bottom up. Um, and we're in this, this kind of poor community that's, you know, we're not in Manchester or London. We're out in a place called Luton. That's a couple, you know, a few hours drive from anywhere. That's like real civilization. Um, and, and again, this is also a kind of a rise of, you see a rise of, uh, like nationalism and fascists. And this is, I was like, t- stop me if you've heard this one before. Right. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a lot of it seems are very relevant to uh, things happening in, in the world uh, today. But I, the the setting feel feels really authentic. Um, and and he is sixteen, and they're doing A levels. And so w- what's different in Britain when they high school's done at like sixteen, and then you can do you can either go find a job or go to vo- vocational training or do further schooling in preparation. Excuse me for universities. So that's a lot different from here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think these kind of characters in the setting, like they're 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 put together pretty tremendously. I, I don't know a lot about the director of Bend It Like Bend It Like Beckham. Uh, I know his big thing is Bend It Like Beckham. Uh, Gurinder Chadha. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Oh, she. Oh, God. Whoops. <laughs> it's a woman. I'm sorry. I'm on IMDb and, and doing my research as we do the show. Okay, excuse me. Uh, yeah, she's tremendous. Uh, she 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 seemed to have trouble in I think the editing room. I think that's really where this film was hurt because and, and probably the screenplay because it's it's overall story is pretty good. It's based on a true story, uh, an actual uh, journalist who grew up with Bruce Springsteen. Um, but like I said, there, there's plot lines that pick up and kind of drop off. Uh, they don't go anywhere, and I'll talk about those in a minute. But ultimately, like the presentation of this movie, I really enjoyed. It, it's very bright. It's it's very. 
engaging. It reminds me of something like Across the Universe in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's charming. Like, and, and for a high school movie, it's supposed to be kind of a feel-good thing. Like, that's really important. It's small. Uh, you only ever see about four rooms in this high school uh, that are repurposed for different shots and different scenes. Uh, the house they shoot in is very small. The streets are kind of all the same. Um, it's clearly, it's clearly like low budget, but like, I really enjoyed it. Like, f- despite that, I, I, I thought it was still good. Um, like I said, the, the pacing and the, and the plot is where I think it hurt. Okay. Well, it, this is inspired by the music of Bruce Springsteen. So let's talk about the boss and how mm-hmm. he fits into this whole narrative. So I don't know a whole lot about the boss. I'll be honest. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's a little bit before my time. After watching this movie, I've been listening to pretty much exclusively Springsteen, um, <laughs> for what it's worth. Uh, I I like the way he's kind of brought into the movie because because we have our character. It, it's almost it's almost stereotypical. We have our character living his life. He's given a couple tapes to the boss by a good friend named. I want to make sure I Roops. get this right. Roops, who is a Sikh friend at school. Uh, tells him they'll change your life. Uh, you, you gotta check him out. He goes through a couple more days of just worse and worse, and things are getting horrible in his life. And finally, on on a, on, a, on a windy night, he puts in his head. He puts in his Bruce Springsteen straight tape and his trusty cassette tape player, and puts on his headphones and hits play. And you get this wonderful montage of 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 words coming up on screen as they play. It's it's the middle of uh, Dancing in the Dark, right? Just Mm-hmm. Great place to start. Arguably his best song. Um, and and you get this wonderful scene of our, our main character, uh, Javed, kind of experiencing this music for himself and feeling like it's talking to him. And he hits rewind and goes back a minute and then hits play and it's still just right on par with what's happening in his life. Um, it's a really powerful bit in the movie and for what it, for, for how they shot it on the budget they shot it on, it was really creative and well done. I really enjoyed it. What did you, you think? Mm-hmm. Some of the, This is where I think some of my problems with the movie is, is uh, some of this, uh, the treatment of the music, we get a blend of like music video to musical to like hot soundtrack. Some of this works, some of it doesn't. I feel like it needs, it needed to kind of uh, pick a direction and go with it. Cause like the stuff that that's more like a musical number is really kind of cringy and I don't think it works. It's not big enough. It's not loud enough. It's not musical enough to be a musical number. I think when it kind of stays more on the conservative side of like looking more like a music video or just when he's thinking and some, and you see lyrics popping up on screen that worked a lot better for me, but some of this, it just sounded, it just seemed a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Like it, it gets a little dreamlike in that way in both cases, whether it be a music video with words coming up on screen or a musical, but the words coming up on screen, like, you know, those aren't actually happening. You know that's not happening in the world of the film. He's imagining that in his head. It's dreamlike. I get it. The musical stuff is implied to actually happen. And when it does, usually you hear the music. It, it's the it's difference between, just to very quickly sum it up, diegetic and non-diegetic sound. I've talked about it on the show before. When a sound is diegetic in a movie, you hear it. You, like the characters hear it and the characters see it in the film and it's in the world of the film. It's like somebody hitting play on a jukebox. When it's non-diegetic, it's like the soundtrack like the orchestral score coming in Lord of the Rings. The characters in Lord of the Rings don't actually hear that music. It's not actually there. Um, but we hear it, so it affects us, but it's non-diegetic. It's not in the world of film. In this movie, right, the music is diegetic in his headphones, and that's it. 
He'll hit play on a Bruce Springsteen song and then start singing out loud. So we hear the music and he hears the music, but everybody else in the movie just hears an awkward high school kid singing (laughs) out loud to nothing. Yes. And this happens multiple times in the movie. And like, it's hard to get around because people think he's charming and go along with it. And I'm like, nobody would do that, especially in 1987 Britain. Most of those high school kids wouldn't even know Bruce Springsteen or what song he's saying. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. He would be even more the weird kid at school. Yeah. But so it wouldn't pay off. There's it's referenced in the film several times that that, well, Bruce Springsteen, that's what your dad listens to. You know, that's the old, old people's music. That's what it's referred to. And this is in 87. And so this feels to me even more out of place like Bruce. And I don't mean to disparage Bruce Springsteen, but I feel like he's not a big enough name to have a movie that where someone's obsessed with it. Yeah, a little bit. Like, like I said, it reminded me of across the universe, a movie that I actually really like, even though it may not be great. Um, I, I, and that's the Beatles, right? Like, there's much more in the Beatles library that you get. Like, Blinded yeah. by the Light, there's, like, <laughs> three songs from Bruce Springsteen, four songs from Bruce Springsteen, I know, and it, that's it. It would be like, like them, if yeah. I wanted to make a film based on Smash Mouth or something like that. You <laughs> Even know. Smash Mouth might have more. Okay, no, I shouldn't say Smash Mouth has more hits than Bruce Springsteen, but, yeah, a little bit. Like, and, and in that way... <laughs> It's totally inconsistent, ultimately, because this movie's clearly going for a couple of different audiences, right? You got Bruce Springsteen fans, and odds are you've got some Bollywood fans. And of course, you got people who are feel good in there as well, but I mean, you can look at the cast list and see like there's some clear crossover there, and that's okay. I think there needs to be. Bollywood is, is a big industry, and it's only getting bigger, and those movies are not bad films, all right? I think, I think they have a reputation in America, but they're also like a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, we need more of that. We need more diversity in film, more representation. And it's cool to have the boss be the soundtrack for that in this movie. But ultimately, it feels like it kind of falls short because of it. You know what I mean? It yeah. Needed more. It needed more stopping power, bigger songs, bigger numbers. And it didn't really have either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the music part of this is what I think works for me the least. And what works the best is actually the family drama. Because you, you have this real big conflict between Javed and his father because his father his father loses his job uh, about halfway through the film and this puts a ton of stress on the family because his his wife uh, Javed's mother is sews all day she sews dresses to sell uh, his sister works uh, they ask him if he can try and pick up some extra work so there's a lot of stress on the family and you know he wants to go and be a writer and his father doesn't think that that's that doesn't help the family you can't get paid for that we need money now and you know and then you know the father is he feels helpless he feels emasculated because he's he is having trouble finding a job and providing so like the family drama of this to me is way more interesting and you could to me you could have left all the music stuff behind and just told yeah. the story without it and it would have been I would have been way more on board I agree. Uh, and there's also, uh, let's get into those plot points. I was talking about they never really go anywhere. There's this whole kind of running thing about politics and uh, neo-fascism in, 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 uh, in Britain, specifically like the rise of like Nazi power again. There's a white power march at one point uh, that's pretty oppressive, but like that never really goes anywhere. Like he's trying to become a, a writer, right? And he ends up getting a gig at his local like uh, uh, paper. And, and he ends up writing an article kind of about that, but not really. Um, and that doesn't really end up being important to the film. Uh, it's just kind of a coincidence that's happening. And it felt weird tonally, like, because it's, it's political, but not political enough to matter. 
There's a there's a plot line with a teacher that never really takes off. There's yeah. a girlfriend in the film yeah, that played by Haley Atwell. Uh, is that who that was? Because yep. she was great. Yeah, I was. I was. I was. She's one of the really uh, enjoyable performances in this movie. Yeah, Haley Atwell. You're right. Uh, she's tremendous in this movie. Uh, there there's a girlfriend and, and a couple of friends in this movie that are brought up and then left aside for like twenty or thirty minutes and then come back into the film later. Like it's it's put together in a real odd way that way and and i think yeah that core family drama is what's most important that's really what kind of runs through the center of the film and that i enjoyed everything else felt a little half-baked mm-hmm. i did want to yeah, go ahead no i'm gonna go i was gonna say <laughs> i, I was agreeing talk about performances uh Haley atwell was tremendous um, um and unrecognizable in this role at least for me i'm sure you probably oh Haley atwell but me i was like who is that teacher and why is she so great and then now looking at her on, <laughs> no i was just like why is Peggy her wig Carter. so bad that's yeah, what I was. Uh, that's true yeah <laughs> um but she's great uh the main kid uh javed played by i'm gonna butcher this again vivek kara uh mm-hmm. i can't wait to see what he does next he was tremendous in this mm-hmm. movie, um, I really enjoyed him. His father, played by Kovinder Gear, uh, was also really good. The friend Aaron Figura was tremendous, uh, and and I liked his friend Matt. His like one uh, kind of white stereotypical white friend, 80s yeah. friend, yeah, played by Dean Charles Chapman, who I knew I recognized, but didn't know from where. He plays Tommen in Game of Thrones, the oh. Lannister that takes a walk out that window, <laughs> right, in like oh, the wow. sixth season after his mom blows up the church. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's where I know him from. Yeah, he was great in this movie, too. So I thought that was really good. I don't know. What did you think? Yeah, um, I, I wanted to touch on, the, on that um, with... Well, who's the friend again? Matt? Dean Charles Chapman, yeah. Yeah, so, Dean Charles Chapman. So there is an interesting storyline here where, uh, you know, Javid, he becomes obsessed with, with Bruce Springsteen, and he's talking about it all the time. And then it... it that begins to change his philosophy and he kind of becomes a, a little bit of a jerk. He becomes a little bit self-obsessed and uh, a little bit pretentious and self-absorbed. And this, this begins to hurt their, their friendship uh, with Dean Charles Chapman. And that's, that's a really interesting plot line that, that I liked uh, as well. And, and again, we it get, does kind of get abandoned by the end of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but like you said, the performances in this film are really good. Yeah, they really are. Um, I, I was really surprised. And with the music, like it goes together real well. Um, ultimately, like I said, this movie may not have been put together in the best way, and it felt like there were some plot lines that didn't really go anywhere, and it was low budget. But like, it it it's, it really does have some some soul to it. Like this story of a kid who finds feels like he's completely lost in the world and and isn't going anywhere, and finds an artist from far away. That feels like he totally gets him. I thought that was really neat. Like, really mm-hmm. neat. I, I really connected with that. I was always that kid wearing headphones in school. Like, and I I, I really enjoyed that. And, and, and this idea that music can transcend time a little bit. You know, stuff your parents listen to might come back around and, and it might be more relevant than ever. Um, you know, I, I thought that was really neat. I love movies like that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite things in cinema, I think. Yeah. Um. So- I, I, I think I'm, I've touched on everything I, I was, was going to say. I think on. I'm about tapped out as well. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Blinded by the Light? Uh, yeah, I, I would. It it does tell, like I said, a very uh, compelling family drama. It has positive message. The use of the music, it will work for some people. It won't uh, for others. Performances uh, were well done. I do feel it's a little bit too long. Uh, but okay. uh, but other than than that, um, yeah, I would recommend it. And there's you know these are the kind of films that I, f- I feel. You know, I, I'd like to see someone take a chance 
even if it's a swing and a miss, uh, then and get to see something new. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. Like I, I really did like it for what it is. I know it's not great. It's probably a wait for streaming kind of thing. Uh, I don't think you need to rush up to the theater see it anything. Um, but it, it's it, it really is a feel good movie. You know, like at its core, that's what it is, and I enjoyed it. It was a little cliche, but hey, I love the boss. So what's what's not to love, right? Blinded by the light. And with that, we should wrap the show for the week. Next week, we're going to be looking at a couple of interesting movies. We're going to take a look at that movie, uh, Ready or Not, which we initially said looked pretty hokey. Uh, Still kind of does, but, you know, it might be fun uh, for what it's worth. Uh, We're also going to take a gander at the Apocalypse Now 4K re-release. Funny story. I know I have. I'm not sure about Andy. I don't think either of us has ever actually seen all of Apocalypse Now. I did recently watch it. I mean, within like the last three or months or so because I'd never seen it either. I think it was one of the weeks we were actually taking taking a week off. So you have actually seen it? I have. And the thing is, there's multiple cuts. And I think this was the... There's a cut that's like three three hours and forty minutes. It was not that one. I think it's only about two and a half hours. The cut I saw, but there are multiple cuts, and this is the four K re release is another cut of the film. Um, so it's interesting. This is definitely something that, like The Shining that you have to watch a lot of times. I think to really unpack. So I'm glad that I've seen it once and I can kind of go in uh, with fresh eyes to uh, this re release. Not me. I'm going in fresh as can get. Never seen it, so it'll be great. So. Uh, we're going to take a look at that, and we'll get back to you on how the 4K looks and the cut and everything. And for me, it'll be a fresh go-in, so it'll be a general review, I think. We're also going to look at, like I said, ready or not. If you enjoyed the show, if you liked what we had to say, or maybe you thought it was kind of mediocre, or what if you have any feedback at all, hit us up on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram at Offscript Film Review. Our, our website is OffscriptFilmReview.com. Our email is mail at OffscriptFilmReview.com. Com and hit us with some correspondence. We'll read it on the show, I swear. Let us know what you think about The Matrix or Spider-Man or any of the things we talked about this week. And if you enjoyed the show, if you really liked what we're doing, the biggest thing you can do is just subscribe. Just hit, the, hit that subscribe button, all right? And, and subscribe to the show so you can hear us next week. And while you're at it, see if you can leave a rating and review too. That's extra credit. We'll talk about that more on the show next week. So from all of us here at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.